Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we're joined by Marcelino Pataha, founder and CEO Measurement. Today, we'll be covering three main areas with Marcelino. First, venture capital's role to help entrepreneurs achieve product market fit. Second, capital options for entrepreneurs following product market fit attainment. And third, How will public and private market options blur in the technology industry over time? Marcelino, please take a moment to give a brief overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics at Major Up podcast. Thank you, Ray. It's wonderful to be here with you and your audience. Uh, Yes, in terms of my background, I actually started out as an LP working at the investment office for Stanford University, which is pretty unusual for most people in a venture. In my case, I started out as an analyst as a two-year analyst, and I actually stayed on for six years, where I got to oversee this direct investment portfolio of over 500 startups. This unique portfolio, just to give a little background there, it was started by Stanford VC alums who wanted to pull together their own capital and invest in their own deals, bypassing their own fees and carry. And the outcome from it, the results of it, would be then given to a specific Stanford entity. And my role as an analyst was most portfolio management, but it gave me a wonderful introduction as to how VCs invest in startups, how to evaluate them and work with them. And also I got to meet quite a few senior GPs of every Sandhill Road firm and beyond. Because of it, just to add a little more to it, I worked with a gentleman named Greg Sands to build a new fund called Coastal Nova Ventures. In Greg's case, he was a 13-year veteran at Sutter Hill. And then from there, I got to work with other firms such as Amity Ventures and Tribe Capital. And then, of course, got, now I'm working on a new fund with a gentleman named Tim Connors of Pivot North, who's a CDBC, along with a former founder of a Sequoia-backed company called Wanolo. His name is Jeremy Burton. So I, it was because of that at Stanford, I got my introduction to venture and startup in general. Well, I'll tell you, Marcelino, the Stanford kind of startup ecosystem, there's no better place. And he spent six years there. In fact, I was read some recent research where they looked at where B2B tech founders were from, which university, and Stanford was by far the top, like 465 of the 800 were from Stanford. So what a great experience. And, you know, when we first met, it was interesting. You had a different perspective regarding traditional venture capital. And specifically, you thought that a venture capitalist firm responsibility at the earliest stage of their portfolio companies was to help their company attain product market fit. So my first question is, how do you define product market fit? And then we'll get into why you think VCs have the responsibility to help the founder get there. I borrowed a really a definition of what product market fit is. And it's really what I believe what Andy Radcliffe has done an incredible job of sharing is that product market fit is when you build something that people desperately want, especially for those that are building enterprise software companies. If you're building something and you take it away from them and they fight you before even even allowing you to take it away, then you have product market fit. And then on the 
consumer studies shared that if what you're building is spread by organic word of mouth, then you have product market fit. Otherwise, until then, you just have to figure out and find your audience, if you will, in order to get that. So that's that's what I've learned what product market fit is. But to answer the other part of the question, how do you get to product market fit? That's where I believe that if a VC is an investor in your company, they had to have the skill and experience to help you get to that part, to go through the what Steve Blank has called customer development phase in order to find product market fit, to experiment and iterate, iterate both on the product as well as in your go-to-market strategy to find product market fit. And that's incredibly hard. That's also the moment when it's incredibly risky. Yeah. And to anybody who wants to read some of Andy's work, just do a Google search. But he really, if I'm not mistaken, first coined product market fit because he's a co-founder of Benchmark Capital, right? Yes. Yes, you're right. And was recently CEO of a startup called Wealthfront as well. So great place to do research. But let's go into the second part of product market fit. We're not going to get into more about the definition, but why have you come to the conclusion that that's the VC's primary role in the early days. Venture in the past couple of years, and you know this, has grown quite a bit. There have been more participants in venture. When I started out in 07 at Stanford, uh, venture capital in the world of startups was a backwater. Nobody paid much attention to it. Perhaps I even got the role that I got because it was overlooked and not considered much. And, and I'm glad it was. But since then, it has trebled in size that notwithstanding what's going on in the markets today, it's recognized now that a lot, lot of the value created in the capital markets is because of these startups that were first formed. And it has attracted a lot of capital market players to the world of venture and startups. But at the same time, just because you get to invest in venture does not make you a VC, right? So I viewed that those at the very beginning that do help founders go through that customer development phase they are, I wouldn't say the true VCs, but they are definitely the true company builders. I mean, the true company builders really are the founders and their teams. But then their investors who help them build a company are also alongside with them, company builders. And that anybody that participates after that are really just capital providers and should not only be treated as such, should recognize themselves as such for the founders and, and how they invest. We're going to have a little bit of a hot take here, Marcelino, because... Mm-hmm. Being here in Silicon Valley and being part of this ecosystem for over 25 years, here's kind of how I see it. You tell me how it's changed. So I always saw angel investors who had been successful entrepreneurs and operators. They became a great source of investment capital and advice on how to move through that first stage of a company's evolution. And Mm -hmm. then over the last 10 years or so, we've seen incubators, the Y combinators kind of also supplementing that role of angels. And the VCs who came in at Series A and later really were primarily capital providers, but not a lot of the go-to-market operational kind of day-to-day insight. Has that changed? Or do you think VCs are trying to get more involved in that early stage operating advice? Well, there's really been this one big change that has happened that, or at least I've recognized has happened, is that founders are much more sophisticated than they were 10, 15 years ago. And a lot of it has to do, well, with two things. One, there's a lot more information that thanks to everybody in venture and tech and the startup world, they've published and shared freely 
That's what I love about the internet is that there's so much knowledge and insight on company building that I can just devour, read, or watch through YouTube videos. It's all there. None of it's hidden, right? If you go to other industries and other asset classes, you would find it incredibly difficult to find information to learn about how to create value in those worlds. But in our world, it's all there for the taking. So any founder that wants to be part of it, it's all there. But then the other part is we've had the past 10, what, 10, 15 years, a number of startups that have become large, significant companies. That meaning that there are people that have developed their skill and have gotten experience in scaling companies, scaling product, scaling organizations. And those people are now a large community that's there. That's incredibly valuable. So anybody that wants to start a startup and they have found product market fit and, and they have something that can actually work, that has legs and that will scale, all those people will come to it and help it and be part of it as well, unlike 10, 15 years ago. So for a founder, do they really need help and support from angel investors? Yes, I'm not denying it. But the reality is that it's more about finding the right type of support that can help them get there faster and accelerate through any issues, avoid uh, avenues that are unproductive. It's really about having like an insight versus just providing typical advice. Yeah, so I'm going to double click on this a little bit more because I think this is really important for, especially for our first time founders out there in the listening audience. Mm -hmm. So a traditional venture capital firm that used to get, we primarily get involved in series A. Now they're actually looking at getting involved in seed investments, right? Because they want to be earlier with the entrepreneur. Do you think they have to invest more in their operating partners and historic or previous founders who can help achieve that product market fit to stay relevant as a capital source in today's B2B SaaS and cloud world? There are founders that don't necessarily need it. I've that's something that I've been learning actually for the past couple of years that there are quite a few founders that can just raise from their own founder friends and raise a significant amount. Of, by significant amount, I mean that it's incredibly cheap to start a startup now. It's incredibly cheap to actually experiment and figure out whether you even have something where that could attain project market fit. I mean, all you need is really an, an AWS account and a laptop. That's it just to get started. But if you want to work with somebody who already has the skill and experience of building a company and you want them to be a partner for the long term that helps you go through those stages as you find product market fit, you begin to scale. That's where it's more meaningful to work with that type of VC. But you have to be selective and you have to know who you pick to get to work with because if you don't and don't have that relationship, they're on your cat table for the long term. And that's not a and that's a hard relationship to to get rid of. So that for now to think of it from the view of the VC that is a seed investor. You're right in a different era when a company was raising a series A, they had to have already achieved product market fit. The VC was able to be much more selective because capital was constrained. Venture was a backwater. There's not much capital in the ecosystem. But today, there's so much capital in the ecosystem. And the model of building and scaling a startup is well understood and has been tested and refined so that the leverage really is on the founder's side. So for a VC to be able to invest significantly in a company, they actually have to bring so much more than just the capital to help the founder. So I think what that's saying is that venture capital, who just providing capital, has been more commoditized now. So they have yes. to add more value. 
And at the same time, there's so many different, I'll say, funding sources available to entrepreneurs, including debt financing. Yes. And you actually have this concept of a venture capital index fund. So I guess the first question I'm going to ask is, what is a venture capital index fund? Well, let me step back. At the endowment, I got to see more than just venture. I got to see other asset classes and how they operate. If you talk to a lot of founders and VCs in the world of venture startups, they think what they're seeing is completely new and has never happened before. But if they were to actually step out and look at other asset classes, everything that's happened here actually happened in other asset classes quite a bit over the years. And my experience has been that what's happening right now in the public markets is going to happen in the private markets as more participants from the public markets participate in the private markets. And they are the same people with the same psychology, the same mindset. They all want to make money. They all want to make money much more efficiently. And they will do so when they recognize that an asset class or a financial part of the world is much more sophisticated and that they can deploy more capital for our higher returns. They will do so. So that's what I saw. But then we also saw is that if that's the case, that's because startup founders, how we share knowledge and the insight to building these companies that part is also somewhat commoditized. And I never, I don't like that word commoditized, but we'll use it for now. In that anybody wants to start a startup knows what to do to first go through the customer development base to get the product market fit, and then what to do to grow and scale it and how to build a team over time. That knowledge has been standardized and shared broadly. So anybody can do so, which means in that, that this world of venture startups has grown much more significantly. And that means that anybody that's a capital provider to provide the right fund to invest in those companies much more broadly. That's what it is. So if you're looking then, just to go back to your question, if you want to invest in this set of companies that are growing, can you do so how in the public markets you can invest in an index funds in order to capture the returns of that asset class? And we know we can. That's why we're building that first VC index fund. Wait a minute. So... So this fund is basically a collection of early stage companies that you invest in and then allow other institutional investors to invest in well, your index fund let, or let's say you're investors? An, let's say you're an endowment LP, a small endowment LP, right? Mm -hmm. So you see in Stanford, Harvard, and Yale, my alma mater, that they've had incredible returns from venture from a select set of funds that got to invest in these companies. Now, would you would love to participate in that same group of funds, but you can't. You can't. They are subscribed. And maybe there are some funds that have grown and doubled in size and and now there's an opening, but you're a little bit leery because you know that if you participate in a bigger fund, that's when we you tend to get lower returns. So what do you do then to be able to get top docile returns and venture? Well, if you spend a little time in the market as an endowment LP, you recognize that the true company builders stay at the C stage. But those funds, especially because they tend to be small, you cannot participate. You cannot invest because it's stay small because you know how, how little amount of capital really is needed to invest in these companies. So how else do you capture then the returns from the portfolio of these company builders, of these CDBCs, and do so that allows you to grow at scale? And then especially if you're a much larger endowment LP, but don't have the same access or resources as, as the Yale, Harvard, Stanford's of the world do. Well, this is a better way to do it because, well, one, we've been integrated in the venture network. 
we recognize who are those company builders and identify them, we collaborate with them and provide the funding to their best portfolio companies. And that would allow an endowment LP to finally get the portfolio that they want, but it's difficult to replicate it right now. So you take a very fragmented market and you do some consolidation to give access to these institutional LPs, et cetera. How does this play out for the entrepreneur? Does he or she have access to less dilutive capital because of this model? I would see it more as less dilutive sounds more like debt financing. It's not, right? It's still equity financing. We're investing directly into the, essentially what are the best portfolio companies. And the way the best portfolio companies of these seed investors are, are identified as is that there are these metrics and milestones that are well understood for each sector of the industry. And they're well understood and, and shared broadly. And some funds actually done an incredible job in sharing that as to like, what does like an enterprise software company have to do to achieve in terms of metrics and milestones to raise the finances that they need? And then what amount that is, what amount and what are the terms and preferences that they would need to agree to, to be able to raise that amount. So it's all there. The information is there. We're just making it much more accessible and broader for the investor as well as for the founder, because the founder just wants to think about building the company. Why does the founder have to spend so much time fundraising and negotiating and trying to figure out and deal with new investors as they build their company? They don't want to deal with that. They just want to focus and scale the business itself. So for us, our view is that the founder would find it much easier because we are already working closely with their initial investor. And we're seeing its team as a team member of that initial investor. Totally understand. So I'm going to pivot a little bit, talking about smart capital also. And when I say smart capital, I mean for their founders, where they just want to have a capital partner that helps them with some of their go-to-market operational decisions, even though there's a lot of information out there in the marketplace. Do you think the VCs of tomorrow, you know, the traditional VCs, we're talking about the Sequoias and benchmarks, et cetera, are they going to have to double down on investing in operating partners, almost the way private equity firms have done, to provide more of that on-the-ground, tangible, experiential-based advice throughout the entire growth journey from day one to day 1,001? Many do, actually, already. Benchmark's like the exception, obviously, as well as others. But the majority of the venture funds that are out there right now, CUSA and above, already have operators on their teams that help support those portfolio companies. And they are pretty active in supporting those companies. My view has always been that by the time the founder and their management team has found product market fit, all that insight and experience is all inside the company. And they know because they've learned all the mistakes, they learn all the issues. They have what I call like a fingertip feel of the industry that they're in and the, and the market that they're participating in. And no outsiders can really provide that by the time they get to that point. But the thing is that when you're going through that customer development phase in the very beginning, before you find product market fit, your initial investor, if they're a significant investor and they're, they're with you day in and day out, they have that feeling inside, inside, like with, alongside with the founder and the team. Anybody after that, do not anymore. That brings up an interesting point, though, because we're talking about venture capital and equity-based investments. And based upon what you just said, Marcelino, and I, I firmly believe this, that when you've attained product market fit and now you're into that growth and scale phase, that dilutive capital is not required anymore. There's these 
ARR, annual recurring revenue credit facilities, which right. is debt, right? And much cheaper debt than we saw 10 or 15 years ago with the venture debt. Yes. My question is, why would founders even consider equity, which is dilution versus a pure credit facility once you hit PMF, product market fit? Well, one, equity capital. Well, if I could be a little more blunt about it, like you don't have to repay equity capital if it doesn't work. I mean, if you're honest about it, like it's equity capital is risk capital, right? The participant shouldn't understand what they're investing in versus debt where you're all obligated to pay. Now it's a well-understood model. And if you can raise more than enough, actually you probably should if you think about it. But for those that do want to grow and scale quickly, typically tend to raise more equity capital in order to do so. But that equity capital that is raised is being done on a well-understood model, business model that is. And that my view is that any participant that's providing that capital that's charging being carry and trying to inter- interfere, and they don't call it interference, they call it supporting the founder, but this essentially interference. They are not necessarily helping create the value when they're just providing capital from there. I really liked how you framed that. And that is, you know, traditional venture capital money is really a de-risking, almost arbitrage for the entrepreneur, even if they're at the point where they could go out and raise a couple million, five million of debt with the venture capital partner, the VC is assuming a lot of risk with you while still providing you some of that operational insight and expertise that you can tap when you need. But at the beginning, that's helpful. Our view is that the companies are significantly de-risked by the time they get to post-product market fit and that the capital provider is arbitraging. They have this fee arbitrage where their value that they're providing, though is valuable, is not as valuable as they are charging for their own LPs for. That if anything, any capital provider post-product market fit is essentially just earning a market return, but they get to charge like fee and carry for it, even though it's still just a market return. I'm not criticizing or or I'm not bad about VCs because a lot of my friends and my peers are in the venture business. But if you're not necessarily providing that much value, you're just providing capital, which is a valuable role as it is, but you're charging to carry for it, then why? In the public markets, fees have lowered over time when people have realized that those that, that were not providing value were just rent seeking. So it's going to happen in the private markets as well, where once you realize that Building a startup is a well-known and well-understood model that those that finance that should be able to derive all the value from it and not pay an obscene carry to middle people between the founder and the and the LP. And by the way, for those out there who aren't from the, the investment side of the house, you know, that carry typically the industry average is about 20% of the proceeds will go to the VC and thus not always to trickle down to the LPs, right? Well, right. Like when you're investing in the public markets and you're getting market returns, you're not going to pay carry on market returns if there's no alpha or any value on top of the market returns. But what LPs are finally beginning to realize is that in the private markets, especially in venture, that they were just getting market returns and that the alpha was not really non-existent. And so why are they paying extra, which is carry for that? That's right. what we recommended. The, the risk reward wasn't there for the LP. You know, Marcelino, unfortunately, we're already coming to the end of this episode of Metrics Major Up. So I'm going to leave you on the primary topic with one last question. Who are first time entrepreneurs, founders out there? 
thinking about their different investment partnership strategy. Is there any kind of kind of simple advice you can give to them to start their fundraising journey? One, notwithstanding what's going on in the market right now, where yes, valuations have come down and for many founders it's been difficult, is even more difficult now to fundraise. But I would advise that recognize your own value and recognize how sophisticated you are today than founders were 10, 15, 20 years ago. That you you and your team have skills and experience in scaling a business. And that any investor that is participating, especially at their post-product market fit, is just a capital provider. And understand that because all the value that's being created, all the wealth that is being created for that company, it's been done by you as a founder and your team. So many, most founders now know that they talk about it all the time between each other, but speak to it and know it and, and, and show it, recognize it out up front. Because in the end, it's the company builders that, that create all that value on behalf of investors. I love it. Recognize your worth up front and communicate and talk that way as you're going out and having conversations with investors. Hey, Marcelino, let's take uh, just a couple of minutes for the audience to get to know you a little bit more on a personal basis with three quick questions. And the first is, is there a CEO or a company that you think is a must follow in 2022 for entrepreneurs? I like to follow founders at the very beginning and there are too many to list right now, but that's because I like the hard stuff, meaning that I like the phase when it's incredibly difficult to find or figure something out, whether it's something that the world actually wants. And those are the founders that I rather follow. So I can't really name one or two, but everybody else talks about like the CEOs, founders of large companies, but by then they're already successful. And a lot of that just feeds on itself. So I, I do not have a name at the moment. I love that advice though, because so often we'll look at those entrepreneurs who become really successful, right? So we look at a Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg. And yeah, it's interesting to look at their path and see what we can learn from that. But in the middle of the moment, talking to other founders and entrepreneurs who are in the same stage of you, sharing your challenges and getting each other's advice, I actually think that's really good advice in and of itself. So last question is, if you were talking to someone at Stanford or any other university that's just getting ready to graduate and they want to be a great B2B SaaS or cloud company founder, what advice would you give to that very recent college graduate? At Stanford, that's easy. That's one, just build something, build something that people want. To, that's pretty obvious. But then at the same time, talk to people who have done it as well. I think that founders, let's say Stanford, just to use some easy example, but it could be any school, really. There's a lot of knowledge and insight as to how to find product market fit. And there are people out there that are more than willing to talk to you and share what insights they have learned when they study the markets that they're working in. And that's what I love about the world of venture startups is that people are so willing to share it. I've been fortunate to have had the same opportunities provided to me because I was willing to ask. And that's what I would encourage founders to do as well. Just ask, talk to them, just seek out their insights, lessons that they learned. And more than likely, as you do, they will invest in you and provide not just the capital that you need, but also help you find the right team, the right networks. They will help you build your company and without asking really for much because they want to support others that are on the path that they were on as well. So that's great advice because our industry has grown so much. You know, 10 years ago, there was 5,000 B2B SaaS companies. Today, there's over 40,000. Oh, yes. This conversation is coming full circle. Like you said, there's so many experienced founders who have been there, done that one times, two times. And 
One of the amazing things about this industry is people are more than willing to share their journey, both yeah. the failures and the successes. It's so valuable that imagine not having to pay the cost that it took to learn a mistake, that to avoid it. It's incredibly valuable to be able to avoid and accelerate your growth just because you can talk to others that can share their wisdom with you and people are more than willing to share it. So of course, I try to do the same as well, where I learn how to build institutional quality funds. So I spend time meeting with mostly emerging fund managers and advise them as much as I can, as much as they want, so that they learn what to do to build an institutional quality fund. So it's a pay it forward kind of world that we live in. And I'm glad that we're part of it. It is a pay it forward industry and world we live in. And very grateful that we have a chance to do it. But today, I have to say that's the end of the episode. Marcelino Pantaja, who's the founder and CEO of Measurement, one of the first venture capital index funds. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you for having me, Ray. It was a pleasure. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying the guests we have and the content that we're providing, it would mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to the Metrics of Measure Up podcast on your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and give us that five-star rating and provide us a review of how we can make the show even better for you as you're going through your entrepreneurial journey. Thank you, Marcelino, and thank you to the audience. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.